you know, I, I skated and I still skate today, you know, and I, and when I was a skateboarder, I always wanted to be around the kids that were really good because mm-hmm. I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to be that right. And, and I wanted to aspire to be that good. It was always nice being around the kids that weren't that good for your ego, <laughs> you know, but it didn't take you to a next level and, 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 and it didn't affect me as to be a better skateboarder. So that's the way I, I look at work. That's the way I look at, you know, being, being a leader. So you just heard a clip from James Bach, who's today's guest. Uh, James is the general manager at Elmo Motion Control, an international manufacturer and partner in automation. He's been an executive level leader for nearly 10 years, working with large global technology companies and transforming teams into families. James has served in the U.S. military for over 20 years, is a devoted husband and father, and proudly lives his life in service and leadership for others. I'm excited for this episode. I've known James for ever. Uh, I know him through the punk and hardcore scene, but also I've watched him develop uh, within his multiple roles that he's taken to get here. And he's just a great person and leader. And I believe he's got a lot to show us today. So before we get to the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. All right, let's get to our episode. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everyone welcome back to the episode so like i said in the intro we're speaking to someone today who is a longtime friend of mine uh someone who i met initially through the punk and hardcore scene and then have gotten also to know as like this great business professional and a great leader so with that james welcome to the show thanks i'm excited to be on here and a little nervous to be honest <laughs> respect i you know i it's interesting when you know someone like personally for so many years and then at one point you're like oh yeah like this person is like a real person outside of punk and hardcore and they have like a life and like kids and a career yeah yeah uh it's funny i was actually looking at some old photos and i I got this great photo of you like in the middle of rhode island with uh with champion jumping like i'm just like that that's such a great shot and And i was thinking about bringing it and sharing it for this podcast but i decided not to sorry but I'll send well, it over. I'll email it. Please send it over. I assume that I look either totally cool or horrendous. It's like, that's like, uh, <laughs> this is, this interview has started off on the right foot. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, so for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, I know in the intro, I said your job title, but what does that really mean? What do you do in your role? And tell us just a bit about the company too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Elmo Motion Control is uh, is a partnership that we we build and a design or a manufacturer of uh, of servo drives, mm-hmm. and uh, we are very high throughput, very small in in, in surface area for square footage, uh, and we work on a higher end with uh, actually a very wide variety of of applications anywhere working with nasa to animatronics to surgical robotics Mm -hmm. to semiconductors i mean so we're very diversified in our portfolio okay uh hold on a second hold on a second hold on a second break that down for the punks like what do you what does that actually mean what does elmo motion control do what do you make and like what are the applications absolutely so uh we make uh what looks like a little pcb board 
that's got some microchips on it and really breaking it down here. And it is essentially the brains that make things move. So if you have uh, a robot that is picking things up and moving it around, it, it's our chip that allows that extremely accurate and precise precision of it picking up and moving it through logic and code. So it's either done through hardware, which is our, our bread and butter, but also our software, which allows it to talk to a controller of some sort. Uh, and, and we are moved and or we move a lot of different industries. Uh, literally, that's what we do. So, uh, so anything that's got movement or what we call motion control, uh, you know, that's, that's where we are. Motion control is my, is my background. Uh, I started off in fluid, which is like pneumatics or hydraulics, which is something that we're all familiar with. You know, mm -hmm. you blow something with air, you know, you have a blow gun and you press that little thing. There's a little valve in there that says release the air. And when you let go, it says stop the air. So uh, motion control is much like that, but it's done through electromechanical, uh, sends a circuit, uh, whatever that wattage may be, and says, hey, do this, do that. But very precise and, and extremely accurate. And it's a closed loop. So you're getting feedback to some sort of system mm -hmm. in case there's safety functions or alarms or whatever you need. So that's pretty much what we do. Awesome. Okay. Now we know. I have to ask a question that every child of the 80s is thinking right now. How close are we to the Terminator? Like, is Judgment Day coming? Uh, you know, uh, I literally said yesterday in a, in a meeting, I'm not joking. I literally said this, there's this one company that's actually on the West Coast, not too far where, where you guys are located, that is doing amazing things. Uh, and uh, they have robots that don't look like Terminator so much, but have you ever mm -hmm. seen the Will Smith iRobot movie? I think it's mm -hmm. on iRobot. I think that's yeah. Uh, they look a bit like that. And I said, man, if those eyes go from blue to red, I'm going to be scared, you know? And uh, it's amazing what people are doing. And we work at the ground level with a lot of the universities from some of the Canadian universities to a lot of the prestige colleges here in the USA. And to see these kids turn amazing things over five, 10, 20 years, uh, it, it's super cool to be at the tip of the spear of technology. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud of my team and what they do. I got a, I got a wicked smart team. It makes me feel silly dumb at times. Okay. Well, all right. Speaking of iRobot, do you remember the, the face of the robot in iRobot? Yes. There's a name and there's a band and I'll leave the band unnamed. They were on Hydrahead, and one of the members of the band had the same face as the face of the robot on iRobot. I and think it, I know who you're talking about. It messed me up, <laughs> man. Like I was like, oh, damn, it's iRobot. Like, yo, yeah. and I'd just be like, well, hello, you know, whatever this guy's name is. And I was like, what's up, iRobot? Like, <laughs> like this is, I can't be the only person that thinks this. Anyway, yeah, all right. So general manager, what does that mean? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, you know, general manager is yeah. I manage a team, and I I, I surround myself with with other leaders, uh, and set the direction. You know, from uh, a commercial to a strategic plan uh, to grow the company here in the Americas. So uh, you know, it comes to profits and loss, to bringing talent acquisition and talent retention, to going after a portfolio uh, that we're displacing competition or getting into a different vertical that we feel that we might be strong in and just are not capitalizing. So th that's, that's me in a nutshell is to bring an overall strategic plan, get everybody sitting in the right seats, bringing on the right team, and then really just going to get it. So 
what makes you, you specifically, the right person for this job at this time of the company? Man, you really jumped deep into the questions, didn't you? Uh, you know, I, I can't say that I am the right person, but I can say that I, I, I'm trying my best with the experiences that I have. You know, I can't sit here and pound my chest and say, I'm the guy that's going to take it to the next level. You know, uh, but what I can do is I, I can offer the opportunity to, you know, have the team see a vision mm -hmm. and, and maybe, uh, you know, I, I can never change a mindset, but I can influence a mindset mm -hmm. to have them go from good to great, right? Mm -hmm. Or to um, bring up new leaders and, and allow them to express their ideas and really capitalize on the culture. Uh, and, and that's the experiences that I've had in the past, good and bad. And that's what I bring to this to this position is, okay, I, I've had experiences where culture was bad and I was able to come in and, and really turn everybody into a family, uh, you know, and and I think that's that's what they wanted. And they wanted a, a culture change for sure, sure when, I, when I accepted this position. And they also wanted to retain the talent that was here. Uh, but more importantly, they want to grow. They, 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 they had plateaued. And if you were to look at the company's cager over five to seven years, it, it's like one or two or 3%. And they said, how do we get it off that? You know, and, and, uh, and that I do think boils down to a good solid team with a good solid vision. Yeah. And, uh, and it takes time, um, but with metrics and, and that's something that I can bring and I, and I offer. And that's what I'm trying to do today with my team. And I think oh, yeah. they appreciate that. So we'll find out, right? Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I, I'm going to get deep on a couple of those things that you talked about, though. Culture is an interesting thing because, like, culture is kind of like strategy. People are like, oh, you know, often when I hear, like, so-and-so needs to be more strategic, it's just code for I want them to be better, but I don't really know what I, what, how I want them to be better. So I'm just going to use this placeholder strategy. Like that so-and-so needs to be more strategic. And whenever I ask, well, what does that actually mean to you? I always see people be like, uh, uh, you know, yeah, the struggle, uh, right? I'm like, yeah. what does that mean? Strategy. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, I, yeah, I, it's like chess, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean. You tell me. And they're like, I, I don't know. And it's, I often feel the same with culture when people are like, Hey, we want a different culture. I'm like, yeah, well, what kind of culture do you want? What does it look like? It's a good desire to want a better culture in a company and to do more than just want something and to kind of like do a few things. You actually have to like go after it and be thoughtful and be like practical and like kind of have a strategy about it. So when you were brought in to do some work about the culture, like what's the culture that you envisioned and then how did you make that happen or how are you making that happen? Yeah, you know, my culture is about my word and it's mm -hmm. about transparency of truth, mm -hmm. right? You know, I, I think I think people get hurt over time if, if, there, if there's expectations and or promises that haven't been met and or kept. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I guess the culture that I had brought in was sort of uh, my background, uh, you know, because I, I do come from a military background. So mm -hmm. you're, you're brothers in arms, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm in the trenches with you. Let's go figure it out. So that's the mm -hmm. culture I've been trying to bring is, hey, give me more on why you did that, you know, mm -hmm. and why is it working? Why is it not working? Whatever that particular that may be, right? So, uh, and, and you, people aren't going to listen to you as soon as you come in. In fact, they're going to have reservation about a new leader that's coming in. And that's a tough position to be in. And we could really go down a rabbit hole and, 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 and have great conversation about 
being promoted into a position where people know you and then coming in from a company to another company where they don't know you to come in and say, I'm changing culture. Mm. That that's not going to happen. You know, I'm not arrogant enough to say that that can happen, but I hopefully I can influence culture through integrity mm-hmm. and uh, and listening skills, but also coaching and and just uh, and trust over time, mm-hmm. and and then then it starts to organically happen because if you're trying to make it happen non organically, it will and has. It's actually backfired on me, and so I've been down the road of hardship as well of trying to force culture, and uh, and so I have learned from that mistake uh, over over the years. And so you know, I I try to be very practical about it, and and again let it happen more organically through action. Let's hit on something though, because I noticed you said this earlier, like, hey, I can't change thinking, but I can influence thinking, and I can't change culture, but I can influence culture. So. What is influencing versus changing mean for you? I think influencing, it's much like you see somebody doing something and you want to emulate. Mm-hmm. I think emulation is the word. You know, you mm-hmm. want to be like that person, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that's my hero, mm-hmm. but, you know, like I'm going to go to my mom. You know, mm-hmm. my mom is a giver. She gives everything, you know, I, I'll never be able to give as much as my mom, mm. but I look up to her and I want to emulate her as much as I possibly can. Mm. And she has then influenced me. Mm. So, you know, that, that's what I, I want, not only myself, but my direct reports, which are also leaders and have teams, right? I want them and their teams to emulate them and look up to them that does go back to the culture thing like wow i want i want to do that so and that's beyond best practices isn't it it's like living a lifestyle it's like no i'm a hard worker saying Mm -hmm. you're a hard worker and and actually you know putting in the hours and people are noticing it Mm -hmm. that that influences people like i want to be that Mm -hmm. you know I, i skated and i still skate today you know and i and when i was a skateboarder i always wanted to be around the kids that were really good because I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to be that, right? And and I wanted to aspire to be that good. It was always nice being around the kids that weren't that good for your ego, <laughs> you know, but it didn't take you to a next level and, 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 and it didn't affect me as to be a better skateboarder. So that's the way I, I, I look at work. That's the way I look at, you know, being, being a leader uh, is set the example Mm-hmm. Show them what you're doing, and 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 hopefully they'll they'll see that, and it will influence and change culture of being better. So that yeah. that's what I mean by influencing. Well, and that's a great answer, and it sounds like what you're talking about is modeling. Yeah, for for yeah. absolutely coaching, modeling, and mm-hmm. yeah. Well, from like a perspective of of change and change management, like I kind of go to the idea, like you know, like uh, walk it, don't talk it, like just be it, and talk about it appropriately. But don't just be like sounding off about it, but you're not really walking it. And I see that a lot in my job. I see a lot of people with like these big ideas. It's like, oh, culture, strategy, leadership. And you just boil it down. It's like, man, you're really, really good at knitting together this like wool sweater of ideas. But like that wool sweater doesn't fit anybody. You've made like a, you've made like a dog sweater for a human being. It makes no sense what you're talking about. 
modeling, um, strong modeling, mentoring, and coaching is I 100% believe is the way that you create like great culture. You have a talent retention strategy, all of that stuff. And it's why I, I do what I do is, is to help people and companies get there. I want to hit on something though, because there's like, there also has to be the decision point. And what I like about what you're saying is, Hey, all I can do is like model and influence and create those opportunities. But it's kind of like a handshake. You can put out your hand, but the other person has to decide to stick out their hand and shake as well. And it sounds like you're big on ownership of other people, like owning their part of saying, actually, I'm going to, I'll be the one that makes the change, but I've been now been influenced by the ideas. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to touch back on being in the military for, for some time. You know, one, one thing that I walked away in my leadership style of being in the military was ownership. You know, you have to own your actions, good, bad, or indifferent. You have to take action and you, and you have to own it because at the end of the day, specifically speaking in the army and in the infantry or civil uh, special operations or whatever you may be in, there's lives that are, that are, that are at risk. Uh, and, and there's equipment that's at risk and there's so much that's at risk and, and being a strong leader in a strong leadership position, you have to own it. So I am constantly making mistakes, you know, uh, and I'm constantly taking risks, uh, uh, not constantly, I mitigate the risk, but I do have to take risks at times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I think the team I hope I, I can't speak for them. So, you know, this is me assuming, and I don't want to do that, mm-hmm. but uh, th- through the emulation and, and through the modeling, as, as you state, I, if I do make mistake, I, I do tend to own it r- quickly. And, and I say, Hey, this is on me. You know, I'm the one that pointed in that direction. And I, I, I said, go do that. And, and it didn't work, you know? Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's where I stand on the ownership side. I, I'm a big advocate of owning your, your mistakes and, 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 and the decisions that you make. Totally. So I'm going to, I, do you mind if I share with you the stages of change model? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. Okay. So in psychology, there is a theory called the trans theoretical stages of change model. And the reason it's called trans theoretical is it's like, it goes across many different kinds of theories and approaches to psychology. I use this a ton in my work. I used it when I was uh, worked in addiction and mental health, and I use it every single day as a, as a coach in the business world. And it's the idea that change is a relatively predictable um, thing that happens based on certain stages. And the stages are pre-contemplative, contemplative, preparation, action, maintenance. And so it goes in a, in a circle like that. I find that a lot of leaders and organizations, when they're trying to create change, like say they're trying to create a culture change, or they're trying to encourage people to like take on new things or think different ways, they start the conversation in the wrong place. So when you think about pre uh, about these stages, I always think there's like kind of like a question that's in someone's head that's guiding their thinking. So if we're thinking about pre uh, contemplation, the question is why, why, like, I'm not even thinking about change. Why would I change? So if you don't start with like a why, like, Hey, like, here's this, here's this change. And here's why this matters and get into that conversation and not push it. Like, here's this prepackaged why for you, but like work with them and discovering the why for them. If you're not starting there, you're going to be screwed because you're, you're going to, it's going to go haywire. Once you get past the why, you get into uh, contemplation. 
Here the question is what? Well, what has to change? Like once the why makes someone for someone uh, sense for someone, the what needs to change because then they're scaling. Like, are you talking about a huge change or a little change or a medium change? Like, what does that look like? So what? What's going to change? Then you get into preparation. It's how. How are we going to do this? Right. And so they've gone from like they've scaled it now and then they're figuring it out in action. It's another how question. But this how is like, how am I doing? Or how are we doing? Like it's a heavy feedback cycle. And then you get into maintenance. And I like to think of maintenance as like three things. Like the first is, how do we keep this going? How do we keep from backsliding? Because in maintenance, especially in addiction and mental health, there's like, it's in maintenance that you expect there to be like a, a, a bit of relapse. So how do we keep this going? How do we keep from relapsing? Or what's our relapse plan if we get there? How do we step back? But also another question is like, what? what's next? Like what, what new height can we go to? So when I think of leaders or organizations and they're like, um, they're trying to create a change again, culture change, process change, whatever. They don't start with pre-contemplation. They don't start with contemplation. They start with preparation or maybe even just action. So either they're like, here's this change and here's how we're going to do it. Or here's this change and here's your marching orders. Here's your action. And like, if we have three different kinds of personality types in the workplace, one is a champion, one's a detractor, and then there's kind of like the middle ground, which are neutral people. Champions, you can drop them anywhere in that stages of change and they'll play with it because they're a champion. They want to go for it. Take a detractor, they're always going to be a couple stages behind. For me, change is always about the neutral people. So if you think of like 100% of your audience, I use like a 20, 20, 60 rule, 20% detractors, 20% champions, 60% neutral. When companies or leaders are making change, they either usually play to the champions or they play to the detractors. Both are, are unnecessary. You always play to that 60% in the middle, the neutral people, and that's who you take through the stages of change. The champions will always be a couple stages ahead or, or at least like one to two stages ahead, and the detractors will always be slightly behind. But you put your focus on the neutral people, and that's all about influencing thinking. Wow, that is very well said, and uh, I'm glad we're recording this. <laughs> well, if you look up, if you look up the, um, state, the trans theoretical stages of change model, I usually just call it stages of change for uh, ease of use. There's actually like, first of all, there's tons of good articles about it. And there's articles like saying like, no, that's not how this works. That, you know, like whatever, like contrary articles, which is fine too. Very rarely will I say go to Wikipedia, but there's actually a really good Wikipedia entry on this. that's pretty user-friendly. Uh, user when I look at the business world, people talk so much about change and there's all these articles like the three stages of change, the 15 stages of change. It's like, whatever. Go to a therapist. They're going to tell you almost the exact same thing. This is how change happens. It doesn't mean it happens this exact way for every single person, but this is a fairly usable and predictable model. Interestingly enough, I think you naturally do some version of this based on your background in the military, background in punk, and just you as a person. It sounds like this is kind of what you do anyways. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking as you're going through this, like, how could I have done better? And, and, you know, wow, he hit the nail on the head on that. And like, oh, I did touch on that a little bit. You know, it's, it's tough going from a company that I've been in for a while. And, you know, you tend to know everybody to going to a newer company. Uh, and I really had to be prepared, right? And like, how do you do this? You know, because they don't know me. And, uh, and I ended up doing this full 90 day, uh, you know, what, what I would do in the first 90 days. And I presented it to the leaders. And I took it a step further. I said, you know what? I'm going to call every single employee that is in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk to every single one of them. 
and I'm going to ask them the same five basic questions, you know, like, what do you like about Elmo? You know, what didn't you like about Elmo? What did you like about your previous leader? What you didn't like about your previous leader? And where do you want to be, you know, in three to five years type of deal? And so I went through every single employee here and I actually did that interview and I did it in the first week. I was on the phone a lot and, uh, but it was, it was worth it and they were worth it, you know? And, uh, and then I presented my, that, that leadership, that 90 day, I tweaked it and I adjusted it and I went through and uh, yeah, I, I didn't try to come in and change, but all of a sudden I'm not even care, kidding, Ariam. I, I want to say around the hundred day mark, the, the coining of the phrase winds of change started happening. You know, and I, I really, I really uh, appreciated that. And I was humbled, honestly. I was just like, wow, I, th- this is great, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I think the team felt it. And, and, and I know the leadership over in Israel, which is where our headquarters is, our global headquarters, uh, you know, they, they had noticed it right away. And uh, it was very methodic and it wasn't a forced thing for sure. And everybody had their input on it. And that, that's important. And I did start off with, what would you like to change and uh and then build the why around that okay this is what they would like and then trying to transform well this is the why the why is growth the why is retention the why is they want to they trust and believe and love their products they just want a nice environment to be moved forward so all right so that brings me to my next question and something you you'd mentioned um Again, people talk pretty vaguely about retention. And when I say I laugh, I mean, I don't laugh in a mean way, but it's like, you've got to imagine how many times in a day I hear someone be like, talent retention is our top. It's our most important. Now I'm using a voice. That, that's the voice that I, I use. I love when you use the voice. <laughs> that's our top thing. And you know what? I, I, I know it is your top thing. I totally I it know. it is, right? <laughs> totally. But why aren't you doing the, th- the things that you need to do? Like you're talking it. How do you walk it? So like, I know it's complex based on like your company, like the, the bandwidth of your company, the ability that the financial ability of your company, where you are in the, in the country, what country you're in. There's a lot of nuances here. And talent retention is like very oddly, broadly spoken about, but like really rarely I found, I find that people do like a deep dive on like, what does that actually mean? So when we think about talent attraction or retention as a result of like kind of a, a poor business culture throughout North America for longstanding poor business culture, but also as a, also a result of the pandemic and all the pressures that have come through it, companies are bleeding talent left, right, and center. And companies are also like hiring pretty crappy, like what I believe is like kind of like tepid level talent and throwing money at them and all sorts of stuff. It is a, a vicious cycle that we're in. So if you think about talent retention, what does that actually mean for you? Yeah, talent retention, it, it, what it means is allowing momentum to can still continue because nothing will kill momentum in a company or within a team than people leaving the team, right? So it's all about uh, the analogy of the Japanese drums, right? You got the, you got the troops marching and the, the drums go faster, they march faster. But when the troops start to leave the march, you don't have many, many people marching forward, right? So keeping that momentum, it's really important. So what retention means to me is, are we setting an environment, first of all? So I'm going to I'm gonna go around the culture because you could have the best environment in the world. You know, everybody's got lounges, all the free soda and juices you could drink. You know, you get a free gym membership and that, this, that, and the other. 
at the end of the day, I, I, I do, I think people want to be the best them, right? Because if you're not learning, you're not living. So you need to empower employees. So for me, retention is setting up the next step for them in their careers, you know, and, and showing them and coaching them and saying, hey, this is, you know, what do you aspire to be? Where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Some people are happy where they're at. Others are like, I want to do this. I want to do that. All right. So let, let's start building that ladder and let's start building that vision uh, and a plan to get you to that place. So you got, now you got the culture, but now, you, now they've got learning is living, right? And they're like, I could be better. I could be a better person. Wait, what? You know, and then, then they tend to want to stick around, right? It is hard today and it is talked about uh, you know, I, I speak with a lot of different leaders like you do. It's it's spoken about today more than than it ever has been. You know, there's even articles about the Great Resignation. I'm I'm using voice now. The Great Resignation. <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was just reading about this. People have now been at home working, sitting back, and thinking, "Yeah, I like the family feel." And yeah. All the perks have gone away though. You know, those that are working at Google or, you know, I'm not going to mention some of the big names, but you know, some of these guys, they don't get to go in the office anymore, right? But they're now they're thinking, how do I be better? Am I, you know, do I have that work-life balance? Am I going to be the best me in three, five, 10 years? You know, I think when it comes to retention, I don't think, I know when it comes to retention, we as leaders need to start treating our employees almost like you want your child to be a better version of you, right? So I, I've got four wonderful kids and my whole job and my wife's whole job is to make sure that they're not little jerks, contributing members of society, and more importantly, they're happy. Are they happy when they get older, right? So, and if they cover those three bases, then I've succeeded. And I think when it comes to employees, hey, are they contributing members to the team? Yes. Are they doing it with diplomacy and not being jerks? Right. And uh, are they happy? Yeah. That's really what it totally. boils down to. Do you mind if I share with you like what I believe is kind of the, the right combination of how to look at things to have good retention, retention and, and good engagement with teams? Yeah, absolutely. Please. I believe there's four things that really, really matter to have like a super engaged, happy team that you can retain and, and really have that sense of like, we're in this together, we're moving together. It's connection to the boss, connection to the team, liking what you do and how much, you know, what the perks are of the job. And I actually think it goes in that order. I believe the mo the biggest decider of whether or not someone stays in a company is, is their connection to their boss and not about whether they like their boss. Cause to me, that's like not a factor. More so, it's that, is their boss invested in their growth and success? Are they learning from their boss? Like, are they showing up and feeling like stretched and challenged? And like, you know, they've, they've got someone who's like, I'm going to help this person grow. You could actually dislike your boss, think your boss is like a total corny, whatever, like you're not into them. But if it's someone that you know is invested in you and is putting you into things that are challenging in a, in a positive way, challenging in a positive way, they're giving you opportunity, they're, uh, they're investing their time and their mentorship in you, they're influencing your thinking, they're not like command control bosses. Absolutely. You could, if you have that, that's the number one for me, the number one ingredient in having strong retention. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I, I can't speak for you, but I, I think people have, if they've been in the, in the industry long enough, 
they've had those bosses that were invested in, mm-hmm. and then they've had the ones that weren't right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you always talk about the horror stories of, of, of the weren't invested. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. It, it, it doesn't matter if you like them or how they, um, they treat, mm-hmm. uh, but if they're vested in you, that that's what really matters at the end of the day. And it, it makes you feel grounded and uh, it makes you feel like you're going to go somewhere and you're learning. You're actually, you know, people equity, I call it. And you could like your boss and your boss could still suck because they could be nice. They could treat you well, but they don't do anything for you. Like that sucks. So number one is your connection to your boss. Number two is your connection to your team. And again, it's not whether or not you like your team, but it's like you're in something together. You're moving together. Like, ease of process like you can get things done well together you might not like want to have them over for dinner or go out for drinks or whatever it is but you work well together there's a strong uh, cohesiveness the third thing is liking what you do and it's actually like fairly far down like i've met many people who are like yeah i don't what i do i'm i'm fine on it's not like my life's passion but i love working for my boss and i love my team that is huge And the final thing that I find that people care about, practically care about in terms of retention is how much they get paid, what the perks are and all of that. What's funny though, when people aren't happy at work, it's like the first thing they talk about or very often one of the first things they talk about. And culture now, it's like business culture now, companies are like dumping tons of money and benefits and perks at people. It's like, no, like take that money invested in great leaders and you're going to, you're going to see a difference in North America. Like I kind of look at this as like a, a checklist. In North America, we're raised with this idea like everything's supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to really love our boss, really love our team, really love our job and and get paid really well. Right. But that's like a real North America thing. I know you've done international business. You know, you go other places. People like they don't have that idea of things being perfect like that. And the thing I often encourage people to think about is like, what's the combination that matters the most to you? Is it you don't actually care that your boss sucks, you're fine with liking your team, liking your job and liking your pay, or is it that you like your pay and you like what you do, but you hate your team and you hate your boss, but that's okay for you. It, you're not gonna, it's rare to get all four of those things, but what combination works for people for them to, to care about staying at a company? And that's what I always encourage people to think about. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree. And it is case by case. And I also think it depends on where you are in your life as a team member. Mm-hmm. you know, because uh, uh, your mindset changes over time. Uh, we do a great exercise uh, here that w- w- what I end up doing is I-, I give them a sheet and it's got like 20 things that what's important to you and you have to label them one to 20, number one being the most important thing. And, and I have them redo this exercise probably every uh, two years mm-hmm. and you will see priorities shift, you know, and, and some of the selections might be to your point, a great team, you know, I want a good culture, you know, or income or a future plan, or I want good technology or, you know, a, a stable work-life balance. This, that, and other. So see, there's some of the selections. What's fascinating is if you're, if you do this with a tenured employee over time, as they're going through their stages of life, they're having kids, money's important, you know, job security. They're like, no, I, I gotta be able to support my family, provide and protect. But then as time has gone on, they, they're like, well, I really need good culture, good work-life balance, and uh, stability. Stability is still there. But the money tends to, to, to weed itself out as, as they 
progress in their careers. So you, you have to find out what motivates your team members. Yeah. And I think good leaders, they'll dig deep to find out individually what motivates each one of their team leaders to get the best of them, but also to retain them. Totally. All right, man. Are you ready for to talk about punk? <laughs> yeah, let's do it, man. All right. So uh, again, for the uninitiated, tell us about uh, your your journey through punk and hardcore, like how you got into it, where you grew up, like what was that? What was kind of the gateway drug to it? And then the impact on, on your life? Yeah, it, the impact on my life was Buffalo hardcore music. You know, I, I come from Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I in the, the mid to, to late 80s that that's I'm aging myself here. But, it, you know, that's skateboarding and, and hardcore it was starting to uh, really take take off in mm-hmm. in the, the Buffalo region. We had a, a great club called the River Rock Cafe, mm-hmm. uh, which is very well known in the hardcore scene these days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I remember being in, in sixth and seventh grade and my dad dropping me off. Uh, there was a, a, a General Motors plant that was down that river rock was on a, on a road called river road. And there was a huge GM plant, um, very blue collar town, um, by the way. And, uh, my dad worked at GM mm-hmm. and he would drop me off and go to the, in, in, at the river rock cafe. And I was in seventh grade by mind you, you know, and he's just like, you'll find your way home. And I did, I found my <laughs> way home, which was pretty far from where I lived. <laughs> I lived in like North Tonawanda, this little town in between Niagara falls and Buffalo. And, uh, you know, but how I got into it was uh, just skateboarding. Uh, there was a, a, a great neighborhood friends that were all into the music. Uh, uh, people that have gone on to be in a lot of the big Buffalo bands that we, we know today and from Buried Alive to, you know, Snapcase and so forth. Uh, and Slugfest and some mm-hmm. of the older ones, Zero Tolerance. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is really what I cut my teeth on, you know. So Garrett Klon went to, to my high school, Scott Sprigg, who was in Buried Alive and so forth. We all went to the same high school together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many kids that were from this small little town called North Tonawanda mm-hmm. uh, that we all ended up being in a ton of different bands over the years uh, from Extinction to... Uh, all the different bands that Jeremy Smith was in, Dead Hearts and so forth, and uh, played with Rage. And we were we were we were loving and living the dream. Quite frankly, that was a good time. Some of the shows after the River Rock Cafe had 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 sort of ceased, and then they were far and few in between. And I was in about tenth grade at the time, and uh, I decided to start promoting shows mm-hmm. in tenth grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad would take me downtown Buffalo and I'd look at certain different clubs and uh, I started, you know, I'm trying to be witty here in, in, in my 10th grade self. And I said, I'm going to call it ZYX productions. And I started doing small shows and I would bring in some of the local bands and uh, you know, I, I became pretty good friends with the guys uh, from Doghouse records, you know, so majority one and, and, and Duncan and all the team from Endpoint and all those guys, we all became pretty close to it and Integrity and Herba uh, with Face Value. And I would bring in some of those bands and, you know, Naked Angel and all. Oh, it was such a good time. And I got to know a lot of those, uh, you know, uh, Stormy and all the Rev people. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I, uh, I was in 10th grade. So I, I actually not only made good friends and, and, and life is about relationships, but because of my immaturity at the level, I think I actually burnt some riches as well as, as time, because there was no way to communicate besides a phone call long distance. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, I remember I was talking to uh, Jay, the drummer of, of Mouthpiece, and Mouthpiece just came out with seven inch, and they were blowing up. And and Jay had, had written me on the back of a a record uh, thing, and he said, Jim, oh, we, we we can't make it in. Uh, we're so sorry. And the, and I got the mail the day before the show was supposed to happen. Oh, and they were my headlining band, and I'm like, oh no. Well, Endpoint and Split Lip was supposed to play the same show. Split Lip called me the day of the show and said they couldn't make it in because of a storm. And I couldn't get a hold of Endpoint because they were coming in from, from Louisville uh, to Buffalo, which is a haul, by the way. It's like a 10-hour drive or something like that, a nine-hour drive. And I can't get a hold of them. And so uh, kids are showing up at that show that night, and they're mad at, at ZYX Productions, me. Like, where's the bands? You know, uh, Scott Vogel got up on there and Slugfest put on an amazing show. And all of a sudden, here comes the guys from Endpoint pulling up in their van. And it's just like a, a, real, a, a sigh of relief. But it was that moment in my life that I knew that I did have the knack for business. And I, I liked, you know, dealing with people. And, and that's how hardcore and punk really influ influenced me. From, from a lot of hardships and burning some bridges, by the way, but also making great relationships and friends. Uh, I went away in the army. I got married. Uh, I was stationed all over the place. And I actually took a pause from hardcore from probably about 96 to 2001. Uh, I was still straight edge. I didn't, you know, I was still vegetarian, the whole nine yards, but I just wasn't going to shows. I, I, was, I was always like months behind the greatest and latest thing. Uh, when you're traveling, you know, living in Germany or something like that. I came back and I moved to Connecticut and I started doing promotion of shows again and getting back into it and uh, making great friends and relationships. And I've been in some bands myself. And that's that's my association with hardcore. And it's it's who I am. Uh, and it's part of uh, part of my life. It's in my DNA. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my team members that directly report to me around they found out I've been in some bands and they found some stuff on YouTube. Uh, and I, I wasn't hiding it. I'm not going to lie. I don't hide it. I'm not embarrassed and by any means, but it was entertaining for them to say, Hey, so tell us about generations, you know, and I'm just like, I'm like Oh boy. Well, you're really not doing a good job of hiding it. It's actually on the wall behind you. Yeah, so, like, it is. It is. Uh, yeah. And I'm very proud of, all, you know, all those guys we're all really close today and, you know, I'm still okay. friends with all of them. Today, so. Well, and just to be clear for anyone who, cause you know, uh, James, people come to this podcast from all sorts of different backgrounds, like punk and hardcore for sure. But there's like people from the business culture, people from like art, music, social activism, like athletics, like a lot of different people listen to this podcast. So for anyone who doesn't have a background in punk and hardcore, the names he was dropping there, like, you know, Dwid, like Scott Vogel, like all these people, these are people who are who have been major contributors to our culture. I want to give a, a special shout out to uh, Duncan from Endpoint, who uh, I really like as a person. I think he's uh, just a great, great person, a great writer, uh, interesting cat. Um, yeah, good. Really, 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 really good dude. Yeah, um, and I didn't mean to name drop. I was just giving this oh, story. Oh, yeah. yeah, I love it. I know. I we we want we want. I think this. it was Duncan who left his shoes on top of a van once and thought we stole them from him, and they drove away as they were heading back on tour. And Duncan and I, we we've had uh, we've had 
some pretty interesting early early stories he's such a good guy uh who would steal someone's stinky tour shoes exactly give me a break (laughs) they just got sponsored by vans so Uh, at that time yeah it was a big deal but all right man let's let's talk about though like punk and hardcore you learned a lot of lessons that like, I mean, you're in grade six, you're being dropped off at this like place and like zero tolerance, for example, you're being like, I just imagined your dad like throwing you into the pit at a zero tolerance show and you being like, ah, I'm going to survive this. Clearly punk and hardcore had an influence on who you are and what you felt you're capable of. You're at grade 10 and you're booking bands from all over North America and bringing to your, to your town. So what'd you learn about leadership from growing up a punk? The one thing that I, have learned over the years is diversity of acceptance. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I need to define this a little bit. And it actually sort of stems and it helped me in the military. You know, the thing about punk hardcore is there's people from all over cultures and all over walks of life. Mm-hmm. And everybody has a value. And, and when I was in the hardcore scene, I was having some really in, amazingly intense and, and satisfying conversations. But people that were all over the place. I mean, when I was growing up, we had pen pals. So I was talking to kids in Germany and in, in, in Republic of Korea, Japan. You know, we Maximum Rock and Roll Magazine. Oh, it, we love that. You know, I did pen pals all the time through that. And uh, and I, I learned to accept the diversity of people and embrace it and, and listen to their backgrounds and what they bring. And although I might not have maybe agreed or necessarily even understood you know, from religion to their political views, to, you know, their sexual orientation, to their stand on animal rights, you know, it's just like, huh, or, oh, okay, or, wow, holy, that's really deep, you know, and that was what really added to my leadership. When I joined the army, again, people from all sorts of walks of life, you know, from the people that were extremely athletic and came from pretty prosperous families that just said, I want to serve my country to those that were like, I, I can't afford anything else. I, I didn't, I, to the other people more like me, which was a humble beginning, but I think I needed discipline in my life. Mm. Like, you know, I, I, I needed structure. And that's who I was when I was growing up. Like, you know, I hit that 17, 18, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I wasn't smart enough for university yet. And I definitely wasn't disciplined enough. So the military helped me in that aspect. And that was the reason I joined. So the, the punk hardcore scene, it allowed me to be introduced to all these amazing, what I would all call a, a paint template that the good Lord has given us and, and appreciate all those cultures and those walks of life. And uh, it's made me a better leader, a better person. And, and it's, it's what I, I strive for my team is I want to learn about them and their, and who they are. So yeah. Rapport is power. I love that. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the military. But before we get into it, I, I, I want to tell you about my near brush with the military. Hi, I almost joined the military. Wait, Canada has a military? I thought it was the U.S. That- oh, no. no, no. It's just, we are we are truly armed to the teeth in Canada. I just want you to remember that. <laughs> um, so here's my brush with almost joining the military. Well, the, the, the Air Force is what I had my eyes set on. Um, I joined the Air Cadets in Canada. And yeah, and I was like really, really psyched on being in the Air Cadets. And so I went 
what is that? What, what's an air cadet? I'm sorry. So, so an air cadet would air cadet. What's the, what's the program that you guys have in, in, uh, your high schools where you're kind of, it's like sort of, what is it? The ROTC? ROTC. Or? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah. it's kind of like an officer like military. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's kind of something like that. It's basically like, it's a way of getting like, uh, engaging in military culture and learning about like an arm of the military without obviously you're too young to be in the military. I was in like junior high maybe. And I was a skateboarder and I was like, I want to be in the air force. And I really wanted to be in the air force ever since I was like a little kid. And, uh, you know, it's cause I grew up with action movies and then was like, you know, all, all the things you think. Right. But I also really needed discipline cause I was like a total wild man and, and out there. So I went to this thing and this is what happened. My parents were like, whew, this guy's finally going to, you know, get some discipline. And, uh, I went in and first thing they told me I had to cut my hair, which was not flying. Cause I had like a glorious skater, you know, like Tony Hawk thing going on. And I know that's hard to imagine where, with my current state of, of, uh, of hair, but that was the, that was the look, but it, this was the thing that really pushed it over the, the top. So we would go every Thursday to this this uh, uh, air cadets meeting, and it was a number of hours that you were there. I think you were there for like three hours, and you were learning about the military. You were learning about the the um, Air Force, like the history. It was like it was basically like going to school. Plus, it was like there was like a military structure, so you're like, sir, yes, sir, and like you know, there's ranks and all of that kind of stuff. There was a, eventually like camps that you go to. You go and do stuff. You could move up the ranks. So uh, I didn't have my uniform yet. And so I was told to report to, to the command center or like I, whatever they called it, like command. And uh, it was, they would hold these meetings at like a local junior high and the command center was like a portable unit, you know, like how they those portable classrooms. And I walked in and I go in the door and there's a guy sitting behind the desk and I, I walk in and he said, private. And I said, sir, yes, sir. Were you raised in a barn? Sir, no, sir. Well, then why'd you leave the, the door open like you live in a barn? And I turn around and I'd left the door open because it just didn't have like, you know, like a, a, a latch. A, a, yeah. And I remember looking at this dude and just thinking like, if we were in the streets, like if this was like normal life, you would never dare speak to me like that because like, I'm like, you know, a skateboarder who's used to skateboarding downtown. And you're just some like, dude, who's like, how, like, how dare you speak to me like that? And it was the first time I ever thought it, that I ever really made that connection between like power and structure enables people to be shitty, right? Like it allows people who, who, if they met you in an equal footing would never dare speak to you like that allows someone to speak to you in a way because they have like the power of structure. And I quit. I literally like walked out the door and I went home and my dad's like, what happened? And I was like, no, I'm not going to let some like total, like some guy like like flex on me like that and it's been such a thing in my life where i think i could have used that discipline but i what i couldn't handle is people who allow power and stru specifically structure to enable shitty behavior and now that's like such a tepid little thing i was like a little kid so i was just being reactive and rebellious but of course you see that throughout like structure of like abuses of power people acting like idiots and if you were to meet people on an equal ground how they would never dare to act like that but it's power that allows them to do that growing up in punk and hardcore allowed me to really engage with that thinking and it also of course it also made me a bit of a ridiculous human being where i thought all power was bad when when in reality there's like a mix of people like you can have people and and that's what leadership is is people who are like 
thoughtful people who do have a, a power, but they don't lead from power. They lead from influence and thoughtfulness and a, and a desire to help and help everyone grow. Uh, you're someone that I think really represents that. Now, I went on a bit of a tangent about my Air Cadets thing. Tell me about your time in the military. Yeah, before I do that, you know, your your experience reminds me of that saying, you know, uh, a leader without a title is better than a, a title without the ability to lead, right? right, right, right yeah. When you give somebody a title, they're, you know, they think they're automatically leader and they, they try to abuse power, if you will. And, that, and that's really sad. And that does, by the way, happen in the military as often as it does that it doesn't happen in the military, you know, so... Uh, yeah, my, my time in the military, you know, I had come from a, a humble beginning and, uh, I remember asking my mom, I said, Hey, we got money for college. And it was right at the beginning of my senior year. And my mom starts laughing. I'm not <laughs> even joking. And, uh, and it really resonated and I got, mad. I got so mad. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, I can't afford that. And I looked at her and I kid you not, and she'd probably kill me that I'm saying this. I said, uh, I said, Ma, you just bought a $2,000 rainbow vacuum cleaner and you couldn't put any money away from me to go to college. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, a little do I know. She's probably on this like 10 year payment plan for yeah, this, yeah. you know, $2,000 vacuum cleaner. Uh, uh, you know, but you know, so I was, I was, I was a selfish little arrogant jerk at the time. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I got a phone call and uh, it was on a, a Friday afternoon because we used to go to church on Friday nights. We had a, like a worship at, my, at our church, my family church. And I remember I, come, I came home from school and it had to be around four o'clock or something like that. And the phone rang and I answered it and I said, hey, how are you? How can I help you? And then it was some, some recruiter on the other line. And he said, oh, I'm looking for James Bach. And I said, this is James. And, and he was just like, Hey, James, uh, I heard you're about to graduate high school this year coming up. And, uh, we just wonder what you, what you have planned. And, and, and you know, the, the vacuum cleaner <laughs> being fresh in my head, I said, you know, I, I don't have anything planned. Actually. I, I haven't, I haven't figured that out yet. And I was honest. I was very vulnerable in this conversation. And he said, uh, he goes, well, you know, I'd like to sit down and talk to you about you joining the United States army. And I kid you not, I said, I said, why don't you show up tomorrow at 10 a.m. and we'll talk about it. And I hung up the phone. Mm -hmm. I never gave him my address. I never, you know, said anything else. I just hung up the phone. And and my my thinking behind is was if he knew my number and he knew my name, I'm assuming he knows where I live. Everybody's got a phone book back then. And uh, he showed up at 10 a.m. We're sitting in my dining room table. Uh, my house was set up very linear, so kitchen dining room, living room. And it was pretty open concept. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember my mom walking downstairs, coming in the living room and she sees this army guy sitting across from me and she turned white. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I'm interested in this. And it was at the end of the conversation and he left. And I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go sign up with the army uh, in the Buffalo Meps on uh, tomorrow, tomorrow evening on a, on a Sunday evening. And my mom just, looked at me, why, you know, and I said, well, what am I also going to do? You know, and I think at first she was just shocked because her, her oldest was, was joining the army and mind you, the Gulf war was just winding down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Bush was still in, in, in house and, and Clinton was about to come in. And, uh, so there was the, all these unknowns and, uh, it was a bit scary for my mom. And, and honestly, it was one of the best things I had done. Now, if you would ask me, Aaron, 
two years into being in the army, if I would have done 21, almost 22 years, I would have looked at you and started laughing. I would have been like, heck no, I'm out. Uh, but you know, time went on and I did the, the citizen soldier thing where I did, you know, my active duty. And then I was able to pursue a career and they paid for my university. And at that moment, uh, I was ready. I was mature enough. They helped me be mature. And uh, I got a funny story about me being mature in the army. Can, can, I, can, I, can I? So I was going through basic training and uh, I was fairly physically fit. Uh, you know, I, I wrestled in, 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 in junior high and high school. And of course, I was a skateboarder, avid skateboarder. Uh, I, I, I was fair, fairly physically fit. So when I joined the army, I, you know, it, it just made sense for me, I guess. And I, much like you, I, I, I'd seen all the, you know, I wanted to be the next Rambo, right? <laughs> so uh, growing up in that 80s culture of, of violent movies. And uh, I, I joined the, the army. I'm in basic training. It is rough. All these guys are tenured Vietnam vets. I mean, these guys, had, you know, 20 years in, they were all in Vietnam. They were in the shit. The trainers. The trainers, yeah, the trainers, the drill yeah. sergeants, yeah. right? And so I was at this cusp of of hardcore basic training where they were still allowed to touch you, but they weren't supposed to touch you, but they mm. were still smacking you around a little bit here and there. And you know, I, I was having a rough time because I was a rebel. Right. You know, I was I'm gonna give it to the man, you know, and uh, you know, I, I know best type of deal. And uh, but I was also a natural leader, so so some of the other troops were sort of gathering around me. We took this PT test, and what they ended up doing is whoever had the highest score was on this grade rank thing, and they said, Hey, if you scored this, raise your hand. Well, nobody's hand raised because it was at the top of the bar. Well, they went down a level, and if you scored this, raise your hand, and two hands go up. And, and who are the two hands? There's my hand and another kid, right? Mm -hmm. And they pointed at me and they said, "You're the you're the platoon leader for for the, the platoon." That that was a bad mistake for James. <laughs> we uh, I, I got fired in 24 hours. It's my first real leadership position, and uh, I got fired in 24 hours. And how they fired me is in the in the mornings it's it's a barrack. And there's two black lines and they'll say, toe the line, toe the line. And everybody yells, toe the line, drill start, toe the line. You run to the line and you literally put your toes on the line. You're not allowed to walk in the middle. That middle is for the drill sergeants only. Don't get caught walking in the middle. If they're walking by the barrack and they see somebody in the middle, ooh, they'll let you have it. And, uh, and I remember we're all toeing the line and I hadn't been fired yet. It's been less than 24 hours. And they said, Private Bach, enter my realm and you know i step over the line and stuff. i'm the first not even a soldier yet because i haven't based i haven't passed basic training i'm the first trainee that's been asked to enter into their realm their their air their space if you will and i'm like sweating bullets i'm like oh no so i enter his realm and he looks at me and then he and i'm standing at parade rest like i'm all at attention parade rest I'm like yes drill sergeant he looks at everybody, the 30 some odd trainees, and he said, I want everybody to look at Sergeant Bach here, or Private Bach, I'm sorry. And uh, this is the worst effing leader you will ever see in your life. <laughs> uh, he has failed you beyond, you know, all recognition. And he, he went on for what felt like an attorney. It was probably three minutes, but it felt like an attorney and just embarrassed me. And then he said, toe the line. And I took a step backwards and I put my toes back in line. At that moment, I knew I had potential to be a leader, but I wasn't ready. 
How had you failed everybody? What was the failure? We weren't. <laughs> we were So everybody showed up in, in, in formation in the mornings. We were late. Uh, mm -hmm. Barracks weren't cleaning. Uh, everybody's uniforms were ragtag. They were going to be anybody up that was in that position, by the way. But they would they would call out every little thing. By the way, I was mm -hmm. the, I was the guinea pig. You know, I, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I hadn't been in the military. I wasn't set up for success. Let's put it that way. The barracks wasn't clean. It, the barracks wasn't clean enough. Uh, I bet you wish you had that fancy vacuum now instead of going on joining the military because of a vacuum. <laughs> So, but I, I did realize at that point that I wasn't ready to be a leader and I wasn't prepared to be a leader. And I remember talking to some of the other trainees at the time and it's like, I, nobody was going to succeed. They didn't tell me what to do. They didn't give me timelines. They didn't give me the expectations. They didn't set the the bar, if you will. Right. Uh, and, and, and by the end, I actually ended up getting that position again and I held it for pretty much till graduation. And, uh, and then that was, that was my first time being a leader i got fired within 24 hours man first of all that's that's sick but second like what you said is like you know there's no real expectations no like real like you know any of the stuff isn't that like almost every single leadership job that people actually step into like very often people are like oh we're hiring this job but you get there and you're like uh, what am i supposed to do and they're like i don't know go figure it out and your success and failure is your ability whether or not you figure it out Absolutely. I think some of the best leaders are the ones that do allow leniency because I think mm -hmm. some people like the leniency to be empowered to mm -hmm. lead, especially if those middle management positions are so hard. Brutal, brutal. They're brutal, man. I mean, because you got multiple leaders above you that are pulling you in multiple directions and they're in the, what I would call white noise, right? So mm -hmm. your job is to be the advocate of your team and, mm -hmm. and, and you're trying to filter that white noise, but then you got the team that's looking up at you and direction. And, you know, and if you're not, if you're in one of those middle management positions and you don't have a solid leader that sort of gives you a little bit of parameters and puts their arm around you and says, Hey, I'm going to give you leniency on this. I'm not going to create a fence and I'm not going to be this helicopter leader that's going to be guiding you every step of the way, but I'm going to give you this, this tiny little fence. How about that? Right. This is what I tell my team. I'll give you this tiny little fence. So if you want to butt against it, you know, it's there, but at times, if you need to step over it, man, mm -hmm. right. Uh, you know, do it within, with, with cause and, and, and do it to the best of mitigating all risks and accountability and always be ethical. But if need be, at least you know that there's boundaries and barriers. And I'm still going to sit down with you weekly, if not multiple times during a week, and give you suggestions, uh, you know, or give you ideas if you ask. Because if you don't ask, you know, I don't, I don't want to be that guy that says, tells you to do every single thing every single day. So I think that there's a leader that could probe future leaders as well, or those middle management leaders, or even I would say manage up. I manage my leaders up. Like I need feedback. Like, Hey, what do you want? Uh, I think that's really hard for leaders. It, it, and at least as a young leader, a few years ago, I had a hard time going to my boss and saying, well, what, what is it that you need? You know, they'll, they'll give a command. And I felt like I, I should have done something and then I would do it wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they come back to me like, that's not what I wanted. And I'm like, uh, and all I had to do was ask. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that open communication, it's two ways. You got to manage up and you have to manage down. So talk, it's okay to ask a question. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's my, that's my piece of advice for all future leaders, current young leaders, 
and even senior leaders. Ask more questions to your team. Ask more questions to your, everybody reports to somebody, you know, ask more questions. If you don't fully understand, or even if you think you understand, mm-hmm. get clarification. Clarification right. verbally is also better than getting it through email, by the way. Pick up the phone, build that rapport again. Three questions. Three questions is running off. All right. How, and as a starting point, how long have you been in your GM role here at Elmo Motion? Uh, so this role, I've been here for 20 months. Okay. So first question is, what do you know about yourself now that you didn't know about yourself at the beginning of this position? Man, I wish you would have prepped me with that question. <laughs> That's a good question. What do I know about myself today? I, I, would, I would have to say that good people don't make good leaders. Mm. And, you know, I, since I've been in this position, I've met some really good team members that may have been or currently are in wrong positions. Mm. Uh, and, and I, and I've learned to have some harder talks, but with diplomacy, mm. uh, instead of letting it sit, mm. you know, that, that is something that I hadn't had a ton of challenge in the past. So I, I've learned that I didn't like to have those uncomfortable conversations about, hey, we need to move you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I've gotten better at it uh, mm-hmm. over the past two years, or 20 months. I just, I just want to reframe that. It's like, just because someone's a good person doesn't mean they're going to be a good leader. It, exactly. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, I, I knew tons of wonderful, wonderful people who are nightmarish leaders and part of them being nightmarish leaders is because they're just such good people and everyone likes them, but they don't, they don't move things forward. They don't give feedback. They don't do this. They don't do that. And it also doesn't mean that someone who's like a total bastard is, a, is naturally a good leader. It's that the assumption that because someone's nice and friendly and like can get along is charismatic that they're going to lead well. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible, it's a terrible assumption to make and it could lead a, lead to a very toxic culture. I did learn that over the past 20 months. Heck yeah. All right. Second one. This is a tough one. <laughs> I love it. Zero tolerance, bad blood versus this world rejected self-titled. Oh man, two totally different, <laughs> two totally different things. I'm sorry, man. All right, I'll make, I'll make it easier. I'll make it easier for, I'll make it easier for you. Yeah. Zero tolerance, bad blood versus zero tolerance, fuel the fire. Oh man, that fuel the fire, that first guitar riff off that very first song, I was blown away by it. But you know, when it comes to high impact records and that that first seven inch, that's that's what I grew up on. And uh, I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna go with seven inch on that one. All right, man. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna go with seven okay. inch on that. Okay. Last last question, man. So. You know, people, like I said earlier, people come to this podcast for all sorts of reasons and, and, you know, from all sorts of different backgrounds. And sometimes it's just like, oh, that person's in punk and they're in like a, like a real job. What's that about? And other times people are like, oh, I'm very interested in that company and I'd like to know about the leadership. There's all sorts of reasons. What do you want to leave your, our audience uh, with today about your philosophy of leadership? So when you think about leadership, what does that actually mean for you? Success is a team sport. Mm-hmm. Don't try to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. That, that, every, that's, that's what I want to impart in everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, ma- make sure that you include and empower and you ask open-ended questions and allow your team to communicate feedback. Uh, allow them to give and voice their opinions, even if they're just on an edge and you need to talk them off the razor's edge, let them voice it out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and hear them because sometimes there's going to be a golden nugget in there 
that is going to take your team from good to great. And it's just a matter of, of empathetic listening and just let them, people want to be good at the core. People want to be great, you know? Uh, so I, I would say that keep that in mind as a leader. And, and that's what I want to impart on everybody is, you know, make sure that you include your team on everything, be very open in communication and transparent and make sure they understand the vision, show them the vision and, and why you're trying to get there. Uh, and, and, and they're, they'll buy in and, and do it not by shooting from the hip, do it awesome. with well thought insight. So. Uh, we covered a lot today. We covered, you know, like growing up in the punk scene, we covered your military background, your current role. We talked about integrity. We talked about endpoint. We talked about Slugfest. We talked about zero tolerance. Like, man, we really got into a lot. So James, thank you so much for being on the show and, and everyone uh, we'll see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat. You know, I knew that conversation was going to be great because, again, I've got a, a lot of time in the saddle with James, uh, but it was better than I thought because he's just his willingness to be open and be vulnerable and really talk about his life and how that applies to leadership. It's really cool. And the thing that stood out to me and, and you know, that we were talking about it as a, as a team afterwards, like uh, the podcast team here. It's that idea of like really good people don't make great leaders. And I, I just want to be clear. Like, I mean, I have abjectly failed at a leadership position before. My first leadership position, I did a horrible job at terrible. Like, I mean, like terrible, terrible. I can clearly say like I went in thinking, yeah, like I'm a good person. I care about people. I want to I want to, you know, be of service. And I just sucked at being a leader. And I sucked at being a leader because I didn't know how to do it and nobody was there to train me. And the leader that I'd had before that was a really, and is a really wonderful person. And sorry to say this, buddy, he sucked as a leader at the time. He was terrible. I grew up under a leader that didn't know how to lead. And so I didn't know how to lead. The thing that I'd say to people is like, being a good person or a kind person isn't enough. To really be a great leader, there is a skill that is involved in that. And some people have natural ability as leaders and they hone that up. And some people have a skill as a leader and they learn the skills and they apply them. And some people kind of have a middle ground between the two of them, but whatever it is, leadership is a really intentional act. It takes a lot of thought, a lot of focus, a lot of planning, but most of all, it takes your willingness to learn from your mistakes. Again, James is a great example of that. And if there's one thing I really want people to get out of this episode or really any podcast is like, hey, Whatever your ability or skill is as a leader, there's always room to grow, to get feedback and become better. So with that, I challenge everyone that every day should always be about where am I good? How do I go from that good space to that great space? But where do I suck? Where am I falling down? Where am I not doing it? And how can I get better in making that change? So as we're closing off, I wanna remind everyone that we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest. We're recorded by Patrick McKechnie and our design is done by Tammy Levy. With that, I will see you next time. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One.